Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we got earnings kicking off uh, later this week. Uh, we want to get a sense from some professionals, like, how should we think about these? What's these earnings, what should we be looking for? Uh, what are the risks out there? So let's bring in Gina Martin-Adams. She's our chief strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So we appreciate that. You get the gold star. Um, you know, we've dealt with a lot since the last time we talked to you. It seems like it's been a little bit, Gina. We've had a banking crisis. We've mm -hmm. had a Fed continuing to raise rates, market pricing in race, rate, race, uh, rate cuts. But let's get back to fundamentals, stocks earnings. What are you looking for this earnings period? Well, I think it's going to be a pretty ugly earnings season. Remember at the beginning of the year, analysts were anticipating about a 2% drop in first quarter earnings. Uh, they're now anticipating an 8% decline. They are also anticipating at least a three quarter earnings recession that began with the fourth quarter of 2022 will extend through the first half of this year at the very least. Okay. Probably by the end of earnings season, we'll find that it'll be a full four quarter earnings recession extending through the third quarter because the third quarter estimate is on the verge of decline already. Wait, these are your analysts? These is this is the consensus of Wall Street analysts. Ah, well, what so, do you think? Look, our model says we get a 5% earnings contraction. That was as of our model was suggesting we were headed into earnings recession as early as the middle of last year. It currently says somewhere between a 5 and 7% earnings contraction overall on a trailing 12-month basis. If you look at the trailing 12-month numbers as implied by the analyst consensus, it's closer to a 3.5% earnings recession. That's very similar to the 2015-2016 earnings recession, which was a mid-cycle recession, but certainly very light relative to your typical earnings recession was about 15%. Mm. I think what everyone is struggling with right now is everyone says the market is fully unprepared for this recession. Unfortunately, I think that the timing is a little bit messy because as of October, our models would suggest actually the market was pricing for up to a 15% recession emerging in 2023. So we already priced the earnings downdraft that we're going through right now. You have to get to a point where the consensus capitulates so far so fast that they're now starting to say, look, this could be even worse than 15% before the market even need go lower than it was in October. And I think that that is what is creating a lot of confusion on the part of investors is, are we ready for this? Are we not ready for this? I think the market is very well prepared for this and that's why it's been able to look through a lot of this weakness. So stocks can perform, the market can perform, 
in a period where earnings are coming down. Yep. And essentially, we, essentially, we already priced this in. Yeah. We've already dealt with it, and we've already recovered on the market, even though you yeah. haven't seen it hit the street. Two conditions that need to happen, that we need to see happen for that to remain the base case. The first is estimate revision momentum cannot go lower than it was in October. So intriguingly, estimate revisions reached the worst of their worst momentum in the October-November time period as well. So even though analysts are marking down expectations, they're not marking them down as fast as they were in October and November, and that momentum is really critical to driving price. So yes, you can absolutely see earnings continue to remain weak, and as a matter of fact, on average, stock prices bottom two quarters before earnings ultimately find their bottom. We can continue to see earnings remain weak and stock prices move higher, but we need to see that momentum remain a little bit less bad, if okay. not start to improve. The second thing that is absolutely critical to maintaining, I think, market momentum going forward is companies do need to continue to cut costs to the point where we can get confident that margins will bottom in the first half of this year. This is something we've been talking about since 2021. Yes. When margin weaknesses started to emerge on the index, it was a very critical sign of weakness coming for the index itself. And we need to see margins bottom. Now, the analyst consensus says, hey, margins are going to bottom in the first quarter. We're going to see the worst of the worst in the first quarter. It's going to get slightly less bad going into the second quarter and the third quarter because finally all these cost pressures are starting to abate. And that is really critical to forming that ultimate earnings turnaround to 2024. When you if look we across, don't get enough cost cuts, it's a problem. When you look across the universe of companies that you and, and Bloomberg Intelligence covers, do you see that happening? I mean, yeah. you can tell, right, before you really get earnings, if they've fired enough people, yeah. if they've... So is it has it happened? It has happened for some sectors. It has absolutely happened within the communication services space. This is at the forefront of everything. That's the this is of the world that we've yeah, seen. Okay. This is Paul's um, yep. comfort zone. <laughs> These are the companies that are really at the forefront of this. He's the been metas, saying meta a lot lately. Yeah. <laughs> Even though this used to be a meta-free zone. Yeah, well, I'm trying know, to get with the kids. He can't help himself. <laughs> Netflix, those Disney's of the world, those companies were at the forefront of the massive margin problems that emerged in 2021. They are now at the forefront of finding some margin lows through their cost-cutting endeavors. You're also seeing tech start to get in on this game. Some select consumer discretionary stocks. We're not seeing it en masse, and we may need to see it in mass before we can really create that margin low. You know, you've had very few layoffs in the financial sector, very few yep. layoffs in industrials. There are some, but perhaps not enough to create those really solid margin lows. I would anticipate we continue to hear more news about layoffs over the so course of So corporate America has more work to do into Q2 is your message. Yeah, I think a little bit more. Um, they also have a lot of cost rationalization they can do, though, just in just general marketing and expenditure. You know, the general expenses can come down as well, which would help that operating leverage. Yeah, I think the investor relations people like across corporate America have said to their CFOs and CEOs, cost cuts the market likes those oh yeah yeah the, I mean, the stocks go up when you talk yeah. about cutting costs uh, that's kind of the market we're in now as opposed to the market wants to see top line growth um so anyway and gina's been talking about and her team have been talking about watch those margins for years mm -hmm. um and been spot on there gina martin adams chief equity strategist for bloomberg intelligence joining us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio again earnings kicking off uh later this week and we'll have full coverage from the bi analysts from the strategists uh and from external analysts as well as some sweet sweet people coming in uh, as well. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. 
Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We got interest rates rising uh, really over the last 12 months at a rate we've never seen before. That can't be good for real estate. So how do you, in your world, look at real estate today? What's your call? First of all, Paul, Matt, good morning. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate you talking about my, Flip a switch, my former somebody. home, Green Street. I hear hey, him, kind of. Uh, David Auerbach. I, I hear him fine. Oh, okay. I there think we go. it could all be right, a, there we go. a headphone problem. David, we, go. we hear you good, man. Sound check Absolutely. successful. <laughs> <laughs> Sound check before the show. Um, you know, uh, and appreciate the Green Street mention. My, my former home, and uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, definitely the preeminent REIT and research shop. You know, when we talk about the current environment of REITs in a rising interest rate environment, my approach is to focus on the fundamentals. We are, you know, with us focused on the residential REIT income ETF. Our ticker is House, H-A-U-S. We're looking at the residential REITs focused on that rental income. So from a fundamentals perspective, in a strong employment environment that we're experiencing, the rent is paid. A lot of the rental players have tailwinds in their favor, which should lead to a pretty decent first quarter earnings season uh, for many of these uh, single family rental players, the multifamily REITs and other players that are in the sector. Well, so everything's good now, but what happens when they have to refi at these rates? Well, that's a great question, Matt. And you know, what's interesting is we've, we published a blog recently looking at the balance sheets of our top 10 constituents. And what we've noticed is that First of all, we're operating in a 10-year environment right now looking at my Bloomberg of 342. Much different than what we experienced during COVID when the 10-year was trading around 1.5%. Much different than just a few months ago when we were trading near 4%. And so as a result, because of what happened during COVID, many of these REITs were able to take advantage of basically unprecedented lending conditions to really well capitalize their balance sheets. And in our blog that I mentioned, we talk about you know the top 10 holdings and looking at their debt maturities. Pretty much across the board, we say that right now for our guys, right now the average debt maturity over the next three years is about 20% of the stack. No company is rolling more than 30% over the next three years. 
<clears throat> we say right now the weighted average debt to maturity is about eight years with an average weighted interest rate about 3.6%, so pretty much right on line with the 10-year where we're at right now. So result, you know, with many of these guys, you know, predominantly with fixed rate debt, I don't see it being an issue at this point. And hopefully by the time that it really comes into play, we will see, uh, you know, Federal Reserve interest rates being at a more manageable level. And David, I know you guys focus on the residential real estate uh, biz. Um, so that's regional, big time regional. I guess the pandemic has just exacerbated the regional differences. Uh, so is it just as simple as go long the Sun Belt? You know, I wish it was that simple because if we, that was the answer, Matt, you and I'd be traveling cross country on my G5 going to see all the shows we want to see. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, first of all, location matters. You know, we have firms that are out there. We all see them every day. CoStar, Zillow, RealPage, Redfin, et cetera, that are telling us where those migration trends are going. And one of the key takeaways here is that if you recall during COVID, pretty much there was this mass uh, exodus from the coast, from New York, some San Francisco, LA. And what we're seeing, especially out of companies like F6, which is a West Coast-based apartment REIT, people are coming back. And so as a result, though, the Sun Belt remains very resilient. You are seeing pockets of strength happen again back in certain parts of New York City, San Francisco, LA, some of the Southern parts of California where there are tenants that are moving back into those properties. Interesting. So people are well capitalized. They got right with rates during ZERP. And uh, the, 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 the tenants are moving back into the you know, properties they abandoned on the coasts. What about uh, costs? You know, we were just talking with Gina Martin-Adams from Bloomberg Intelligence, and she was saying in the market you know, broadly priced in a recession last year. And so um, we just need to see that hit the street. But the, the only concern she has when we get earnings this quarter is that companies need to deal with costs. They should hopefully already have taken care of them, but maybe they ha need to into the second quarter. What about REITs? Great question. And obviously, Gina always delivers the goods when she's either on TV or radio. So, you know, tough guess for me to follow up on. You know, a couple of uh, takeaways here. From a cost perspective, that's something that is always in the wheelhouse of every single REIT management team trying to focus on. How can we maximize our revenues through growth? And how can we minimize our expenses through expense control, whether that's utilizing smart technology, a potting concept? You know, a potting concept would be, let's say you have three residential properties within a two-mile radius. You could use, let's say, one or two maintenance guys across all three properties as opposed to planting one at each location. So I think with these guys focused on trying to you know, maximize the bottom line, the NOI number, you know, that's expense control plays into it. But from a very high level, you know, right now the rental market remains strong. You're talking about 30-year mortgage rates that are above 7%. Housing affordability is out the window, especially if you're in one of these desirable markets. So for those factors alone, that benefits the rental landlord. Remember, we're focused on rental income. That rental income that you pay to the landlord as your monthly rent payment goes into investors' pockets in the form of dividend income. And that's what we're focused on. As the rent goes up, that dividend hopefully should go up at the end of the day as well. So I'm looking just at the S&P 500 Real Estate Investment Trust Index and year-to-date, it's kind of flat up a little bit. Where are the, the REIT stocks relative to, say, NAVs right here? Is there value in REITs or in a rising real, real estate or rising interest rate environment, you just 
maybe don't want to get near them. Let me get up a little pedestal here and give you the 411 on 411 there. Public traded REITs are trading at a massive discount to net asset value. That's unlike some of the private vehicles that are out there talking about them trading at premiums to net asset value. Historically, though, and if you go back to some NAREIT, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust, some of data, over the long term and rising periods of rising interest rates, REITs are the sector that you want to be invested in. You know, traditionally, REITs have been that usual go-to during, you know, uh, flights to safety uh, because, again, of that dividend income stream. And so, you know, until we do see a major reset in this interest rate environment, we're focused on those strong pockets and fundamentals. You know, taking it outside of residential, there's a reason why companies, you know, uh, sectors like industrial REITs or REITs and tower REITs continue to remain very strong because these are properties and sectors that are being used every single day. Self-storage, there's a, there's a merger that's going on right now between extra space storage, or ticker is EXR, and life space, life space storage, uh, ticker LSI. And so there's some tailwinds in that storage space. Remember, we're all hoarding more and more stuff. You know, Matt, I can't go to a show without buying another T-shirt or a magnet. And so, you know, that just adds up to my into the storage unit. And so as a result, these are sectors that are just going to continue to grow. It's those other sectors that are right now, you know, everybody cares about offices and malls. And what's the long-term future for those sectors? I wish I knew the answer to that. But mm. I can tell you that there's definitely a long road ahead for residential REITs as far as that, you know, maintain strength. Don't get me started on malls, dude. When uh, we recently got the summer tour schedule, what are the what are the must see shows? What are the shows that you can't miss? Are you coming back to MSG? I'm hopeful to be at all seven MSG. Uh, I will be seeing my 200th show next week at the Hollywood Bowl in LA. Sorry, oh. we can't be together, but uh, if all goes well, yes, you will. I will be at all seven at MSG again. Vernado, you know, big New York office, Penn Plaza, big major redevelopment going on in the area, currently on pause, I believe. But, you know, again, it's hard. You can't walk around New York City without being hit in the face by a REIT at pretty much every single intersection. All right, David, good stuff. Uh, appreciate that. David Auerbach, Managing Director at Armada ETF Advisors. So you were talking fish? Fish. I okay. went to a, an amazing fish show with David and... Um, I guess, I hope I'll be doing it again. <laughs> again good stuff. <laughs> and they just tour all the time, just like the dead did? They tour, yeah, pretty much. I mean, they've had hiatuses. I don't know the plural of yep. that word, but uh, they're on tour again, and I'm psyched to see them this summer. This is the last summer for the Dead & Co, by the way. Oh, is that right? If you want to see Bobby and okay. Mickey play with John Mayer, this is it. All right, I'll make a note. All right, um, very good how stuff. How old is Mr. Weir, by the way, do we know? I believe he's 77. All right. I'm not 100%. Still 78, maybe? You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, we got some M&A out there, folks. Uh, Gold giant Newmont raises Newcrest bid to $19.5 billion. Some movement there in the gold space. Grant Spore, or Spora, how do I do that, Grant? Hey, Grant, how do I pronounce your last name, Spora? It's Spora, yes. Spore, awesome, Spore. He's a metals and mining senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Grant, talk to us about this you know, Newmont deal for Newcrest. What's going on there? 
Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Firstly, in the gold space, I mean, there are two drivers for M&A. One is um, every year these gold companies eat up their reserves and resources. And if you're of a certain scale, you really struggle to replace those reserves and resources. So the one way to do that quickly uh, and, you know, arguably, well, depends on your valuation, but hopefully not too expensively, is through M&A. So that's the one reason. And um, in this case, Newcrest does have a, a particularly good or large uh, reserve base. Um, so that's what Newmont are after. Uh, and the second reason or the second rationale is there is a school of thought that you, it's the bigger you get in gold, um, the more you're likely to attract the, the, the generalist shareholder as opposed to staying in a, in a sector which is often perceived by mainstream investors as a bit niche. So, you know, if you become the, let's say, the, the Exxon of, of, of the gold sector, um, that'll, that'll get you a premium because people will naturally gravitate towards you. So that, both of these are, are at play here for, for Newmont's bid for, for, for Newcrest. So, uh, nonetheless, the shares are down today. They were down yesterday. Um, is this price too much? So, if you depends on, on which way you look at it. So, if you look at it on an earnings multiple, the answer is um, possibly. Um, the implied sort of um, valuation bid in terms of EVT EBITDA is around 9.6 times uh, for Newcrest, which is you know, way more expensive than its next most expensive peer, which is Agnico Eagle at around 8.8 times. So on near-terms earnings basis, you know, one would say um, Newmont is, is paying up. If you look at it from another perspective, if you look at it in terms of, of reserve value, then it actually isn't. Uh, you know, then, then for instance, Agnico Eagle is, is, you know, is around $530 per ounce of, of, of reserve whereas the Newcrest bid is only around $200 an ounce. So on that basis, you know, um, future, future reserves or future growth is, is not that expensive. Today's earnings are. So I guess um, investors today are saying, well, in the near term, that looks a bit expensive, uh, given that, that uh, Newmont shares are about the only gold sector, uh, gold stock that is down today. So, uh, Grant, in this space here, I mean, is does scale matter? I mean, when I'm digging this stuff out of the ground, does scale matter? Why do this deal? Do you think? Well, again, so it's it's in fairness, you know, my initial reaction would be would be to say, look, it's all about quality, right? It's you know, how much value are you adding? What's your your cash flow per share? Things like all the good good metrics that we look at. Um, but so far, um, Newmont, which has built some scale, um, it does trade also trade at a premium versus many of its peers, including Barrick, which is its nearest, its next biggest competitor. So it's pulled the valuation gap on its on its nearest competitor. And you know, in terms of quality, I wouldn't say Newmont is necessarily a better quality company than Barrick. Um, but the market seems to, um, you know, be wanting scale. So that the market seems to has is is, is seems to be indicating that yes, scale does matter. Um, you know, my, my 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 I would argue the the opposite side of it and say, you know, I'd rather see the value add in terms of, you know, are, are you able to take those reserves and resources and actually develop them and deliver the the cash flow out of those ounces? Um, and this deal will will take some time before that comes to 
to light. You know, you could be two to three years before we actually see the benefit of the deal coming out. So how have uh, Grant, these gold miners then in general, traded next to gold? I mean, we've seen the underlying commodity uh, breach $2,000 and get pretty close to an all-time high. So in terms of, if you look at year-to-date performance, uh, most of the, well, certainly the more leveraged names have done very, very well. So some of your your, your South African stocks, um, you know, are up 50% year-to-date. Really, really done very well, massively outperformed gold. Um, some of the larger cap plays are, have marginally outperformed gold because, of course, you, you still have lingering cost inflation. So that you know what you what you gain on the top line, you're also giving away on the on the bottom line to a certain extent. And and Newmont, because it's in a you know it's it's the aggressor in a bidding situation, has has kind of underperformed a little bit. So it's the one stock that has actually underperformed slightly. Um, so yeah, in general. You know, the gold stocks and the more leveraged ones have done very, very well here to date. So, Grant, what's the – is this a space, the mining space, something across all metals? Is this a space that is ripe for consolidation, has already consolidated? Uh, give us a sense of how that space looks. So, I think I think to, to, to sort of – before I answer that question directly, I would say that the miners are definitely – Tilting from um, you know, cash returns um, to, to to much more growth, so you, you'll see capital spend rise, as well as the sector being much more willing to look at M and A as a growth angle. So, uh, I mean, for the past, I'd say, you know, since about 20, 2013 or so, they've been in the in the sin bin. Um, for, for overpaying at the top of the cycle in, in past M and A transactions, so they've kind of redeemed themselves by by paying lots of you know good dividends and and doing share buybacks and 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 being very very disciplined with their capital. So they've kind of earned the right to go out and, and grow again, and we are starting to see that slowly emerge. Um, and and so is gold is I would say is ripe for consolidation. Some of the other sectors are it's a little bit more challenging. Um, but in, in base metals, you know, the, the battery metals, particularly copper, is very sought after. And it's quite difficult to get your hands on, on really good assets. Is gold, so set to, is gold set to keep rising? I mean, $2,005 a troy ounce right now, 2006. As the Fed tops out um, at, at the terminal rate, which is the expectation, and then goes on pause, are we expecting gold to continue to climb? Um, <laughs> I wish I could... Gold looks quite expensive to me at the moment. So at the moment you are, it's kind of anticipating that Fed on pause, um, and it's also it's also pricing in quite a, a hefty, let's call it insurance premium against any sort of tail risks that are out there um, in the financial in, in the financial system. You know, more banks uh, potentially in trouble. So for me, gold looks expensive. Um, but it's certainly in a bull market, so I wouldn't rule out that it continues to climb. Um, but you know, it's getting more and more expensive versus a whole raft of other financial metrics. All right, Grant, thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate you coming on here, uh, talking to us about this deal in the gold space and kind of the gold market overall. As Matt was saying, gold's north of two hundred dollars uh, here, and it's yeah, it's pushing up towards all-time record. Grant Spora, he is a metals and mining senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Just looking at his CV, he was head of Euro mining and research at Macquarie at Deutsche Bank. He did a stint at UBS, uh, and he's been at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, now for about three years. 
Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We are awaiting some comments from Washington, D.C. Secretary Janet Yellen uh, is scheduled around the bottom of the hour. We'll see how that goes. When she does speak, we'll bring those comments to you. I want to talk about this economy. Uh, I want to talk about the Fed um, so I want to talk to somebody uh, who kind of knows what they're talking about here. Neil Grossman, co-founder and former CIO of TKNG Capital. Neil, while the rest of us and, were... And? An advisor to the Nor Norwegian Central Bank. Oh, nice. Right. Did you actually live in Norway? No, unfortunately no, no. not. You did it from over here. Yep. Because Norway's pretty nice. Actually, they usually only invited me to come visit in February. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You get some you get some deals there, I guess. Hey, Neil, you know, last Friday, most of us were, were not here. We were, the markets were closed. So we were celebrating Good Friday or however you do that thing. Um, we had another good jobs number. You know, payrolls are still strong. Unemployment rate is low. Can you have that and this greatly anticipated recession at the same time? Um, it's going to take time to evolve into what I would guess. The number, by the way, a couple interesting things about the number. Um, 236,000 jobs. Uh, the trailing 12 months was about 342,000. Now, that's the weakest since we've started the real recovery. But if you go back pre-COVID, the single strongest 12-month period going back into the 80s was, was 332,000 jobs over a 12-month period on average. So we're still creating jobs, in a sense, at a, at a at a rate that's very, very strong. To get the unemployment rate up is going to be tremendously difficult. I mean, at 100 to 125,000 is usually viewed to be a break-even, so you're going to have to go below that to start to push the rate up. Does this Fed have the, I don't know if courage is the right word, the metal to push through that point? Because it's going to be painful for Americans and not politically palatable at all. Well, I mean, again, the question is going to be how you balance that with inflation. I think most, for the most part, Americans would probably tell you that the inflation they've experienced has been horrifically difficult for them. True, but so, those who, I mean, 
if you're faced with rising prices or losing your job, I think I know what most Americans well, would so, choose. So, so the question, Matt, is how far below? First of all, 125,000 jobs a month is still not losing job. Even going down to zero job creation is not it is not fully losing your job. It means, of course, the unemployment rate will be rising um, in the background. I think the question is going to be a couple of things. First of all, um, there is no way to keep adding jobs at this rate unless the workforce starts to expand significantly. Right. You're going to hit a limit where there's just no jobs available. I actually think in the background, this is the, what could be the, big, the Fed's biggest problem, because if you're not really losing jobs, what you're probably likely to find is that the competition for, for good employees is going to push wages up, and that's where the Fed, I think, is worried. That's the wage price spiral that they want yes. to avoid. We did just talk with Gina Martin-Adams, who runs our equities coverage for Bloomberg Intelligence, and she said, what we need to see, what investors need to see to justify these valuations is real cost cutting and that maybe we haven't seen enough in the first quarter. Corporate America needs to do more in Q2. Yeah, you haven't seen much. And I, I, again, the other interesting feature of what's going on is um, I think people have scratched their head why the economy has tended to remain strong. But we, what we've had is a very strong nominal economy for, for the last several years. And what's been coming down is real, gro is real growth because inflation has been going up. We're now starting to see inflation come down. Even though nominal growth is coming down, that will still support the real number. The real problem is going to come, and this is what I'm, I've started a position for, for whatever it's worth. I'm beginning to buy protection into the fall, because I think in the fall you're going to see the consequences of falling earnings, what will be weaker um, growth, not only nominally, but I think you're going to start to see inflation actually rise as we move into the fall. Wait, before we get further into the economics of it, give us the structure, the mechanics of that trade. How do you buy protection? Well, for me, um, I'm, uh, well, first of all, a couple of things that are interesting. Uh, we've talked about this before. What I've been doing for the last, let's say, half year to year, because volatility is high, is I'm very, I've been very happy writing optionality and getting paid to take risk. Volatility has come down significantly. So I've started actually by way out of the money puts, and I'll build a structure where I can have a fairly significant size, either outright or a spread trade, designed to, you know, to benefit if we have a fairly sizable move. I'm not really as worried about a 5 or 6% move. Those are not the type of things that cause problems. You're protecting against a big 10, the 20 big, percent drop, yes, 30 or, percent or, drop. Or, yeah, it could be 30. I mean, you, you know some of the streets analysts are, are looking for 3,000 to yep. 3,250. That type of drop, I want to make sure I'm making a lot of money on my hedges. How can the market sure. drop or de-risk that much in the face of declining interest rates? Isn't that fight well, the Fed the, story? Well, We're not there all, yet. Well, interest rates have fallen. You're talking about the front end. But the yeah, problem okay. is, Paul, Paul, if, if inflation starts to rise, listen, remember, we had a period last fall where the average inflation rate, headline CPI, I'll use it, was yep. at 0.1%. That's fairly low. And so it's going to be a very easy situation for the year-on-year -year numbers to start to push up the year-on-year -year inflation rate. So if inflation is rising while you're getting slowing earnings and slowing growth, the Fed's hands are still tied functionally. And that's really the situation I think we have to be worried about. So no cuts at the to the to the target rate. I mean, they've told us time and time again, 
Jerome Powell has said, don't expect any cuts in 2023. But the market is still pricing in for from the way I read the WERP page, the World Interest Rate Probability page. And you're probably someone who's much better at reading that kind of stuff. I'm not sure it really means that the market believes the Fed is going to cut rates four times. Maybe they're hedging as well. Well, I mean, that's where the the the, um, the three-month LIBOR or the SOFR um, you know, uh, futures are priced for. So people are actually out there putting on positions that are directing these, these, these yield, you know, break-evens. I think the, an- the answer to all this is, and the last time I was on, I think Paul asked me, do I think they're going to cut rates? The answer is generically no, unless. And the unless is, a really, is, is if the stock market comes apart. I see no under- I don't understand why anyone thinks if you're near full employment and the economy is still doing okay, why the Fed has any reason to cut rates. And, right. and, the, and it's the equity market that feels it needs lower yields to push prices up in this type of environment. The Fed, I think, if you're looking at a longer-term, you know, a dynamic stochastic process or whatever you want to call it, um, the Fed needs to wring out inflation to actually maximize the outcomes over a long period of time, not just in the next three or six months. Do you think inflation is materially coming down, or is it just kind of stuff we see? I think some of it is and some of it isn't. If you go into a restaurant and try and, right, or you fly or you go to, (laughs) I mean, I I can tell you stories about hotel prices. It'll just, you fall, you fall off your chair. If you look at some of the things, for example, some of the union issues that are going on now, I think, you know, Rutgers just went on strike. I mean, this is not the type of of behavior in in a weak economy where you're worried about your job. This is, I think you deserve to pay me more. And the question is, if we're going to continue to see upward pressure, I think the dock workers are threatening or on strike out west again. That, by the way, has much more of a flow through impact. You know, then then you've got the issues that it makes it harder and harder to you know to to, to um, look at say commodity price inflation and ignore the other stuff. What do, do you pay attention to the jolts data? Yes. Why is it? Now, I went back and just looked, and it usually is like four to five million, six million. We've been sitting around 10 or 11 million openings for a long time. What's happened to our workforce? Where are all these well, it's people? Not, by the way, number one, it's not clear that those are all real jobs. I mean, sometimes yep. if, you need, if you need workers, you may be spreading out more um, job requests, and you don't know if the people are on multiple. I'm not an expert on the, on the, on the dynamics right. of how that But that's for measured. sure true. I mean, I can just tell, tell you, looking for a uh, used Hellcat online. A used what? A Dodge Challenger Hellcat. Um, a lot of the ads there are no longer relevant, right. you know? And it's the yeah. same thing with job, with job openings, right? You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. What a treat here. We got a new contributor to Bloomberg News in New York. I mean, she's been here for a while. I was going to say, not new to me. Right. I've been uh, interviewing her since before she left. Then while she was gone, and now she's come back. She's back. Simone uh, Foxman, uh, she is a reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So you get a gold star for coming in, not phoning it in. Matt (laughs) and I, we we keep notes of that. Simone, you were in Qatar for like how many years? For three and a half years. And covering all things... Covering all things geopolitics, energy, a little sports. Yeah, World remember we Cup. talked to her. We talked to her during the World, World Cup. Cup. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, yeah. that's oh, oh boy, what a great time was football to be. or soccer. As right. I still, it's still soccer <laughs> to me. But, Good. Uh, all right, but and you also did energy in a big way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I mean, 
you know, OPEC Plus, what was it, a week or so ago? Yeah, it was... Uh, a week ago, uh, Monday or something? It I was Sunday before last. Okay. Yeah. OPEC Plus comes in and cuts production. What do you make of that? I mean, it sounded pretty coordinated to me. Absolutely. I mean, look... We clearly have Gulf producers, especially Saudi Arabia, wanting oil prices higher. You know, they're looking for $80 a barrel. And that's largely because of the economic transformation that Saudi Arabia is pursuing. It has these, you know, trillion dollar projects, right? Like Neom. Uh, It needs the money. It needs the money in order to. Neom is what? That's the the, uh, dream city? It's the dream city on the the Red Sea. Yes. This is extremely expensive. Are they really building it? They are absolutely trying to build it. They are hiring lots of people. Slow process. They have big targets for 2030, actually. So we're going to try and see. We're going to see how this goes over the next course of the next couple of years. This will be the biggest master plan community in the world when they're done. Really? And if you you check out the projections, it's this line. I believe it's like 1,500 kilometers. It's a very long, I don't want to say the wrong number here. Extremely lengthy, massive project, super futuristic. But, you know, in order to do this, they need oil prices at $80 a barrel because, you know, their break-even is something like $70 a barrel. So they need that extra to balance their Well, budget. they got it there, right? I mean, uh, WTI trades for around 80 Brent trades for 85 and Yeah, right now. But, I mean, I think that's why you see a move from OPEC+, Plus. you know, this time really led by Saudi Arabia, cutting 500,000 barrels a day. That's why you're seeing this, because they need that oil price. And so if there's any concern about demand from China uh, going, you know, rebounding slower than expected, uh, concerns about recession in the United States and Europe, you're going to see them be really proactive about this to try and keep those prices high. I think that's just the way they've come out on this. So far, um, it looks good in terms of the European and, and U.S. economies, right? The China reopening, is that still the big question mark? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think there's just a, a broader concern that, you know, you're going to see the Fed continue to tighten because of things like inflation remaining high. And I think energy doesn't probably help that kind of conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think the markets are just jittery and they yeah. haven't kind of landed on an ultimate explanation. And, you know, unless things turn around in China, then, you know, the whole question is, is bigger. If you're so for the Qatar economy, is it all energy? Pretty it's much? A lot energy. It's uh, a lot energy. I forget the exact breakdown, but they have tried to grow their um, non well, energy right. sector. Tourism. Tourism. Wealthy yeah. people that are going to be arrested everywhere else in the world love to go to Qatar, <laughs> right? Hey, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like you can lump a, a couple well, I shouldn't say this. But there's there's a lot of things that are are the same among these Gulf countries, and there's right. reasons Qatar is no longer part of OPEC, but they, there's reasons oh, they're, they're they no all part of a, no oh, no okay. uh, geopolitical. Oh, disputes, that's right, I remember that. I remember that. But yeah. but there's reasons they all want to keep oil prices relatively high. You look at the UAE as well, I and mean, these are all places that see the end of hydrocarbons eventually down the road. And they say, this is our moment to really capitalize on this, to try and build non-oil economies that haven't existed before, with the exception maybe of Dubai, which really largely has moved through its oil. And so, again, that's well, why you've seen them act in, in conjunction So here. the place to go, a really hot place, if you're an international 
fugitive billionaire has been Dubai, right? <laughs> but isn't Saudi Arabia trying to uh, get some boost of that market? <laughs> the boost the profile of Riyadh to get some of those people? Okay, not the fugitive billionaires. I don't think anyone particularly is excited about hosting them. No, but maybe the former king of Spain, right? Yeah. Okay, well, Riyadh's Riyad, plan is say, everyone move your global headquarters here if you want contracts with Saudi Arabia over the, the coming years. Ah. And they set you know, a deadline, I believe it's 2024, but... Um, You've got to move here if you want our our contracts. You can't have your regional headquarters in somewhere else like Dubai. So this has been a real challenge to Dubai. Mm. You know, the problem with Saudi Arabia is the the standard of living is is different than you might expect it's very it's very different from the west it still feels foreign despite all the reforms that you've seen there in the last couple of years you know the the looser dress codes um you can find alcohol even though it continues to be illegal you know but there's various reasons people don't want to live don't in Riyadh. okay so um where they still do want to live in places like the uae or even doha for that matter okay well i guess you know, it's interesting here because the, the Journal had a story out recently. Saudi-led oil cuts hit headwind. Some small producers have boosted their output, threatening to undercut the effort. I mean, how powerful is OPEC and OPEC Plus today versus, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago? Because um, it seemed pretty like they still kind of have it, if you will. They can still move the markets, obviously. Well, absolutely, they can still move the markets. But I think the U.S. supply is right. is a real challenge to them. And notably, the U.S. has increased its output by more than a billion barrels uh, a day over the past year. But the, the Wall Street Journal story it points out something very interesting, that even members of OPEC, you know, the, the issue, part of the reason that we had really you know, tight markets, high prices for a little while was because even members of OPEC, like Nigeria, for example, mm -hmm. they were over complying, so weren't producing as much as the quota that they had. So um, the, the issue for places like Saudi Arabia is now they're actually producing much closer to the quota. They had, uh, you know, they shut down some of their mining and production uh, for COVID-19, and it was a slow start for them. They, there was some theft issues, particularly in Nigeria. But, you know, Nigeria adding 350,000 barrels per day since September, you know, that erases about half of the Saudi cut at that time. Yep. So it's not just the overall OPEC plus move. It's, you know, working against these even small players. 100,000 barrels a day here, 200,000 yep. <laughs> barrels a day there, you know, that erodes the overall power of someone like Saudi Arabia or Russia. Let's broaden it out uh, to a, a global conversation about gas prices because we were freaking out. We were, uh, yeah. A year ago, and um, especially Europe was not in a good place. But they've done relatively well, helped by, I guess, a milder weather, right? Um, how does it look now? I mean, go we're, we're heading into the summer, so we're going to be okay, but going into next winter. Yeah, they got super lucky with the weather, and it really meant that storage was not eroded by as much as it could have been. I think we ended uh, the season, the, the overall season, around 60% of storage still remaining full. Um, and, and we heard a lot of folks, you know, I think coming into this year saying, well, the 2023, 2024 winter, that's going to be that's the main right. concern. But now you have Morgan Stanley saying that they believe that European storage is going to be 100 percent full by late August. That's not so far off from our BNF forecast of a couple weeks ago, 90 percent 
by the end of September. And this really sets them up for a very positive year here. A lot of this, however, is demand destruction. You know, yep. industry not uh, seeing much higher prices still, and, and therefore, you know, slower European economy. That said, you know, if the concern was that Europe's going to fall apart because there were a decline in supplies from Russia, that's just not really what we're seeing. Again, we've got a couple winters here, though, to get through. All right. So you've been, when did you move back to New York? <laughs> like two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. <laughs> what do you miss most of Qatar? The pool in my building. The pool. No, <laughs> I miss my friends too. Yeah, but, oh, yeah, yeah. but you know, I, you live in New York City. Yep. <laughs> I, I don't know how. I mean, there are a handful of people who probably have a pool in their building, but right. you know, go downstairs exactly. in the jacuzzi. And what? Outside. And what were you looking forward to most coming back to New York? Oh, my friends and family. We yeah. live. We live around here. But you know, also, um, a good pizza. Great pizza. <laughs> I mean, there was good food in, in Qatar too, but um, you know, the difference is it's not walkable in the same way. It's very new, yep. it's very fresh, and I think it is going to take them time to kind of build right. um, more cult- cultural cachet. That's yep. just that's just my my opinion. Well, welcome back to the capital yeah. of the world. Thank you. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> All right, Simone Foxman, she's a reporter for Bloomberg Television and News, uh, joining us uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Looking at the shares of CarMax, they're up about uh, 11% today. Put out some pretty good uh, numbers. Let's get break it all down. We'll talk all things auto since Matt Miller is not here. He went over to the TV studio to get ready for his show. So let's talk cars. Kevin Tynan, Cedar Auto Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So CarMax, big move in the stock here today, Kevin. What's the story with their earnings? Yeah, you know, one of the companies that um, just given the scale, the experience, uh, the market positioning that you know, did a decent job with controlling costs, in a market where volume is going to be low for a while. Uh, gross profit per unit was strong, but you know this is a company that's going to be dealing with uh, a much lower volume environment for probably quite a while. And that's really what derailed you know, some of the pure play online only you know, used sellers like Carvana and Shift and Room and companies like that. So you know, just their market position uh, was a was a big advantage to them in this kind of environment where we're just not going to sell as much stuff. And and Kevin, I remember just you know putting into context when the pandemic hit, uh, you know Detroit shut down its lines, and so if people wanted a car, they had to really start looking at the used car market. And as a result, used cars went prices went through the roof. Are we now lapping that and that kind of tough tough comps now? Well, here's a problem, and, and you know everything you hear about the used car market is like, oh, just wait, here comes prices just tumbling down, and you know I, th- that volume issue on the new side I think bleeds into the used side as time goes by, and especially like in areas like leasing, you know. So when we prior to the pandemic, if you're talking about a 17 million unit market at 30 percent lease penetration, you know we had five million off lease vehicles coming every you know every year, but you, the the pandemic hits and we go down to a 14 million unit market, uh, and then on the new side you're not incentivizing those sales because they're so much lower, right? Selling over sticker, no more incentives, no more discounting. 
So prices are high. So you're getting a market or you had a market that didn't need lease incentives. So leasing goes down to 20% in 2022. And we only did 14 million units. So you're talking about a world where we're going to see instead of 5 million off lease vehicles, two and a half. Mm. And so that kind of situation, you're saying like, okay, well, how do prices come down if we're going to cut the off lease supply in half? Yep. Yep. So, I mean, maybe we've seen the declines we're going to see. So, so if I'm CarMax, am I, am I like the new, uh, like the new model year guys, if I'm a sell, like CarMax selling used cars, am I selling fewer units, but maybe at a higher gross margin? I think so. And I think, like you said, you know, new vehicle dealers and, and, and I mean, full line dealers that are doing new used parts, service, yep. finance, insurance, all those guys, and, and then the used only and the online used only, like all those dealers, all, the, all those retailers should be prepared in all those business units to be doing less volume, except for probably, you know, your service bays, your parts counters, right? If people are going to be holding on to their vehicles longer because of pricing or interest rates, you know, you can expect, um, you know, more wear and tear maintenance. So the full line dealers probably have a little bit of advantage in that business unit specifically, but anybody selling vehicles, new or used, prepare for a much lower volume environment. All right. So again, in my lifetime, the Detroit, you know, the auto guys would crank out 17 million units a year. You're telling me that's kind of a, a thing of the past that these guys are going to have the discipline to keep production down at, I don't know, 14 or 15 million a year. Yeah, I think so. And I don't know. It's so much discipline. I think, you know, this is where the market or the industry has wanted to be forever. Right. Um, and it all comes down to rationalizing those costs. You know, it was a world where it had to be 17 million units because, you know, there was a lot of fixed costs in there, legacy costs, um, you know, pensions, union labor related costs. So it's it's really a different environment now on the on the cost side of the ledger that you just don't need to produce that many vehicles. And I think the other thing that's nice, too, when you look at it from that perspective, you got all the transportation costs, the carrying costs for the dealers. So it's not just the manufacturers that are okay with this lower volume, richer margin mix. It's also the retailers, right? You don't have you don't have logistics and and floor plan expense on a a sea of vehicles that you're not going to move for months at a time. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, it sounds like, you know, this is the best spot the industry's been in from just a profitability perspective that I can remember. I mean, is that, am I overstating it? No, not, not at all. And, and I think that's the thing is everybody goes, Oh, you know, are they going to have the discipline? And you say, well, you know, it, it's where you want it to be. So it's not, it's not an accident that the industry is here. I think, um, to their credit, manufacturers and even retailers have moved their businesses to a point where uh, it's it's more efficient, right? Fewer units. Now you don't have to worry about tacking on those extra two and a half, three million units um, by throwing money at the problem, yep. right? So, hey, if I only need to get my market share of a 15 million unit market, that's a lot easier than trying to get that same market share and create a 17 million unit market and it's you know it's it's better for the income statement it's better for your retail network um so it's a much organically healthy environment um but i think people look at things from the consumer's perspective and say 
you know, where do those two and a half million units go? The the market is rolling over. It's, you know, it's 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 devastated. It's and it's really yep. not. It's because the revenue pool is actually larger. Well, at then how come units. how come it seems like maybe this is a sector that should be re-rated from an investment perspective, stock perspective, a multiple perspective. Are you surprised we haven't seen these stocks move higher? Because it sounds like a lot better business than it ever has been. Yeah, I think the, I think the way it's looked at is that right. You're either a growth industry or you're a value play. And, you know, I think the problem is that when you go, well, how do you explain being a growth industry going from 15 million, you know, from 17 to 15? Right. Right. That's the opposite of growth. But, you know, people aren't really looking at what that means for, you know, the revenues and and profit contribution from fewer units. So and I think what we're on the verge of is, look, this this industry couldn't grow total volume so it became about mix shift to truck from car. Yep. Now you have a lot of automakers that can't shift to any more truck. Ford is like 98% already, <laughs> and most are already there. So what you're getting now is that the next growth opportunity comes from the mix shift to electrification. Problem is it's not profitable yet. And, and ultimately, 30 seconds left, Kevin. Ultimately, what do you think the profit margins on an EV vehicle will be versus an ICE? Well, you know, the idea is that simple manufacturing, simpler manufacturing process, um, which I'm, I'm not sure. I think if we look at the way Tesla does things, there's a lot of copy and paste and, you know, the, the models look the same. And, yep, yep. you know, I'm not sure that a full line portfolio is as efficient in terms of production, but fewer moving parts. And, you know, the whole idea of, look, it's a skateboard of batteries and then you're just going to slap <laughs> a different body on it. You know, it can get there. But you know, you're talking about a whole different yep. menu of materials, too. Yep. All right, Kevin, always a, a pleasure to speak with you, particularly when Matt's not here, because I get get a question or two in there. Uh, usually, Matt just goes all over the, the auto story. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.